week of this series on the Reformation, and we're looking at some major themes that came out of that time, that era, and out of that movement. Um, They are Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and to God be the glory alone. And today we're looking at this theme of grace alone. I forgot to change the heading on your message notes, but it is grace alone today. And in order to really understand how important and how radical an idea um, this was at the time of the Reformation, we kind of need to go back and look at what was happening in the church at that time and how different their understanding of grace was from what we have now today. And so I'll just say up front, we're just going to jump in the deep end of the pool today. Uh, right here at the beginning, so I need you to hang in there. So throughout the message, at times right at the beginning anyway, I'm going to say, got it, and you can let me know that you're still with me by saying, got it back, okay? Got it? All right. So in the late middle... (laughs) All right, Fred, yeah, there's always one, right? Any teachers here? You know. right. So in the late Middle Ages, um, pretty much everyone with any amount of piety understood that there was something wrong in the church. There were protests and attempts at reform popping up in different places. It was a time when Catholicism uh, was experiencing a great deal of corruption among the priests and the, the papacy. And I want to look at some of the factors that led to Luther's insistence on reform. And this is nothing against the Catholic Church today, Tina. This is things that were going on back then that caused Luther to feel like uh, some reform was needed. And most of these uh, four things come out of Eric Metaxas' book on Martin Luther. So the first thing is that the church had a, a distorted or a different kind of view of God and Jesus Christ. God the Father and Jesus uh, were both at that time principally seen as fierce judges. Uh, God wasn't seen as the loving God that we understand him to be today. There was an emphasis on his holiness, his righteousness, and this big gap between God and humanity that had to be filled somehow, and they weren't filling it with Jesus Christ. We'll talk about uh, some of the things that they were doing. And this caused a lot of fear among people. Uh, and so there was this uh, a different understanding of who God was. And this was where the idea of praying to Mary came about, uh, because they saw Mary as more human and understanding their temptations and the things that they were going through. So they would pray to Mary and appeal to her to speak for their, on their behalf to this, you know, harsh uh, son of hers and uh, to... to uh, intercede for them. So then the second uh, teaching was about a place called purgatory, and the Roman Catholic Church taught then, and and they still do, that the soul doesn't go immediately into heaven. Uh, Instead, many people are uh, spend some time in this in-between place called purgatory, and this is where a believer will go. This is uh, people that are destined for heaven uh, only people that are destined for heaven go there, okay? It's, if if you're, you've done evil and you're going to hell, you just go there. 
Uh, anybody that's in purgatory is eventually going to end up in heaven. But it was a place of suffering where you were purified from sins that you didn't get taken care of while you were on earth. And so a person could be there for thousands of years. Got it? All right. The good news is, or so the church taught, was that the the church had a treasury of merit that could be applied to shorten your time in purgatory. And this treasury of merit was accumulated because some people, uh, special people like saints, especially Jesus Christ, uh, had done so little bad in their lives and so much good that they had actually amassed a surplus of merit. And this was, you know, and unlike some of us who are in the red, they were in the black when they died. And so there's a sur- surplus of merit. And the, this treasury of merit had been, uh, God had appointed the bishop or the pope and the church to dispense this treasury of merit. And this merit was a way to clear away sin in this life and to shorten the time spent in purgatory. Martin Luther and other reformers believed and taught that you can't have both grace and merit, that the church is not a dispenser of a treasury of merit, but rather a proclaimer of the gospel of the good news of grace, grace, God's grace. Grace alone is sufficient to save. So, got it? Got it. The belief that the church possessed this treasury of merit then led to another teaching or practice that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for Martin Luther. And that was the sale of indulgences. Because the church had this uh, different teaching about grace at that time, they had a system for paying for your sins. And um, we all know about confession, right, and confessionals, and that was part of the system, that you would go to the priest and confess, and then he would decide what you needed to do to pay for those particular sins, whether it's 40 Hail Marys or 40 Our Fathers or whatever it was. Um, But then it became evident that there wasn't going to be enough money to repair or uh, rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It had been built in the 300 uh, AD and it was in bad shape and they needed money. So there was this idea to start selling these indulgences. And indulgences were a piece of paper that the owner, uh, it would absolve them of sin or shorten their time in purgatory. It was kind of like a get out of jail card in Monopoly, all right? And some people were buying these uh, indulgences for sins they hadn't committed yet. I was like, all right, I'm planning a kegger this weekend, so I just buy myself an extra indulgence now and I have it all taken care of. And this tremendous problem and temptation to make money off selling indulgences only got worse when, um, in 1476, when Pope Sixtus IV realized that the market for... Uh, indulgences didn't have to be confined to the millions of people on earth who were sinning, that we could sell indulgences for those people who had already passed on. And, you know, we're spending this time in purgatory, and uh, we could sell these indulgences to the, the grandchildren and the children, you know, to kind of ease their parents' time in purgatory. 
And who wouldn't want to, you know, get grandma out of, you know, thousands of years of suffering in purgatory if you could just buy this little slip of paper that would, would save her and send her on to heaven. And Martin Luther was pushed into action by a neighboring priest down the street from him at that time, uh, Joan, Johann, uh, Johann Tetzel, who coined a phrase to kind of, uh, it's like a marketing scheme or whatever, to sell his indulgences. He said, once the coin in the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory heavenward springs. All right, so it's like, uh, buy these and you can set people free from all that suffering that they're going through. So instead of dispensing grace, the church was selling these tickets to heaven. Got it? Got it. So where did this leave Martin Luther and the people of his day? Well, it left them fearful of God fearful that they couldn't do enough to uh, escape all of the suffering that was ahead of them in purgatory, and that they could never meet the righteous demands of God. So there was this constant feeling of guilt, feeling of, um, Martin Luther suffered from depression. And in his attempt to secure his salvation, Luther devoted himself to all kinds of severe disciplines. He fasted so often and so much that his friends feared for his life. Uh, he practiced vigils at night and prayed for extended periods of time. One time he didn't show up for prayers in the morning. They went and he was unconscious on the floor uh, in his room. He would often sleep without blankets in the winter to uh, defeat the flesh. He wore rough uh, clothing. He went out begging to experience the humiliation of what it was to be a beggar. And he wrote later in life, if I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other words. Uh, but God, thankfully for him and for us, intervened. And Luther was asked to teach at the university and while he was studying the Bible in the original language, not the Latin Vulgate, he discovered a different kind of story there than what was being taught in the, in the uh, church at that time. And you need to understand that you know, there wasn't a lot of access to Bibles at that time, and so the monks and priests didn't necessarily read the Bible that often just to sit down and read it. They had little snippets of Scripture that they used in the liturgies, but they didn't know the whole story. And when Martin Luther got to study in it, he came to the realization that indeed he could not be good enough. He would never uh, be able to work hard enough, treat his body harshly enough, do enough penance to find favor with God. But he didn't need to, because salvation depended on grace alone. And the evidence was right there in the scripture. I put several of those scriptures on the back of your message notes to show how sufficient God's grace is for our salvation. But one scripture where this came through very clearly was Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is our memory verse for this week, so let's read it together. Um, just insert the Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So, so that sticks out so, stuck out so much for Martin Luther. It's not by works. 
I mean, if we could work our way to heaven, then when we got there, we could boast, right? But it's not by works, it's by grace that we are saved. And God's grace is the centerpiece of the gospel story. It changes everything. Luther said it was like the door to paradise had been flung open to him, and he experienced great joy. And in the time that we have left, I want to talk about how we can respond then to this free gift of grace that has come to us through Jesus Christ. And the first thing is to receive the gift of God's saving grace. And I was thinking about, imagine if the Reformers had not fought for this theology of grace. If we, like Martin Luther and people in his day, were trying to work our way to heaven, trying to buy our way into heaven, never knowing if you've paid enough or done enough or worked hard enough, the message that rang out from the Reformation was Christ is enough. The cross is enough. Jesus paid it all. And Scripture makes it clear that um, no one can have enough merit on their own. We're welcomed into the family of God on the basis of God's grace. Uh, another great Scripture that illustrates this is Romans 3.23, which says, For all have sinned. Okay, So nobody's <laughs> coming into this without being in the red. And fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. We can have eternal life by the grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've never accepted God's grace in your life, it's available to you. Uh, it's a, there's a very simple prayer that you can pray. It's sorry, thank you, please. I'm sorry for my sins that sent you to the cross. Thank you for suffering and dying for me. I want to live for you. And then please come and be the Lord of my life. Very simple. And if you pray that prayer, I'd love to, to know about it. But that's not the end of the story. God wants to have an ongoing relationship with you where he's continually showing his grace to you as you follow Jesus and live for him. And that's the second way that we respond to the grace that Jesus has shown us. And that is to seek to live in God's grace daily. Seek to live in God's grace daily. Sometimes we have this limited picture of what God's grace is. We see it as this what we just talked about, God's forgiveness and his mercy. That's his grace. That we have this unmerited favor with him and uh that he forgives us when we don't deserve to be forgiven. But God's grace is so much bigger than that. And unlike the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church in, in Luther's day, um, they were trying to earn merit, but a common definition of grace is this. It's grace is God's unmerited favor. Right? There's nothing you can do. There's no merit you can earn um, that for, to, to possess this. Yeah, everybody knows what favor is, right? Uh, Louise, will you go get, do me a favor and go get me a drink of water, right? And you go and you get me that drink of water and it's free. It's, it's just a, it's a favor. But in, because of our brokenness, we tend to turn favor into a currency, right? Uh, you say, will you do me a favor and watch my kids this weekend? And the answer sometimes is, sure, if you'll watch mine next weekend, Right? Uh, we, we make a currency out of it, but God, not, God doesn't do that. God's salvation is available to everyone 
as a free gift. And throughout the Bible, God shows his favor, his grace, in a variety of ways. Uh, For instance, he showed his favor to the Israelites by fighting their enemies for them, right? God shows his favor by fighting for us. Is there anybody here who needs God to stand up for you and fight for you in some area of your life, whether it's a physical illness or a court case or a battle of the mind? Um, We need to just seek to live for God daily and then in his grace daily. And then God showed his favor by protecting his people. Does anybody need God's protection? God's grace pursues us when we're running away. You know, he's called the hound of heaven. And that's because of his grace and his goodness. He doesn't leave us lost. He comes seeking us when we turn away from him. Uh, The Ten Commandments were God's grace. He taught his people how to live according to the way he designed life to work. And other people groups didn't have this. This was God's favor shown to them. He gave them these guidelines on how to live well. Uh, Spiritual gifts are evidence of God's grace working in our lives. Uh, We read this in 1 Peter 4.10. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Grace shows up in unexpected ways and uh, through unexpected and unlikely people when we use our spiritual gifts. So do you need God's protection? Do you need God's um, provision? All these are ways that God shows his grace, and we can live in those things daily. And then the third uh, way we respond to his grace is to offer God's grace to others. Um, A while back, Forrest and I went shopping, and we got hungry, so we went to eat at Olga's Kitchen. And I've never been brave enough to eat there because I didn't know how to say their sandwich, you know, the Giro or the Hero or the whatever, however you pronounce that, so... But we decided to go in there anyway, and I discovered that you didn't have to know how to say it because they have Olga's original, original, so you just order that, and you don't have to know how to say their sandwich. But, well, we had waited what seemed like an extraordinarily long time for a sandwich. When the waitress came out, she had a tray full of plates, and I thought, oh, good, here comes our lunch, only to have her stop at the booth a little bit over and start to unload the tray there. So I was a little disappointed. And then as she's unloading the tray, it dis, it got unbalanced, and one of the plates dumped on the floor. And, of course, the manager was standing right at the next booth over clearing tables, and he gave her a look like, you are such a loser. And, you know, I just thought looked at that, and I thought, what a jerk. Um, Sometimes pastors think those things. (laughs) I did. I was feeling bad for the waitress and feeling bad for the people at the table because they had waited just as long for their lunch as, as we had, and now they were back to square one. So the waitress is apologizing to them and telling them that I'll come back and clean this up, and Then she turns and walks over to our table, and she puts the one remaining plate in front of Forrest and says, you know, uh, to me, I'm sorry, I just dumped your lunch on the floor. (laughs) Now I'm feeling sorry for myself, (laughs) thinking, isn't that great? (laughs) 
But I had a choice. I could either, either give her the same look that the manager gave her, or I could be gracious. And when I tipped her at the end of the meal, I could do it on the basis of what she deserved, on how she had performed, or I could do it on the basis of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Getting something good and wonderful not based on your performance. Don't we need that? Not based on what you deserve. God's grace is his goodness and his kindness, his forgiveness and life given to us because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. And as I said earlier, that was great joy for Luther. It's, it's a gift. It's free. We don't earn it. We can't earn it. And, you know, that's hard for us to get our minds around in, because we, love in a wor- we live in a world that sends a very different message, right? Uh, we live in a culture of ungrace. We're, we're taught that we get what we deserve, right? The early bird gets the worm. <laughs> There's no such thing as a free lunch. These are things we say, right? No gain, no pain. No pain, no gain, right? You get what you pay for. But that's not how God is. Uh, Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing in Grace, says that if we open our Bibles and listen to what we hear there, we will hear a loud whisper that says, you did not get what you deserved. You did not get what you deserved. You and I deserved punishment, but we got forgiveness. We deserved wrath, we got love. We deserved a debtor's prison, and we got set free, a clean rap sheet. We deserved death, and we were given life. That's God's grace. That's God's amazing grace. And we can offer grace to others in a variety of ways. You know, uh, forgiving is a big piece of it. Forgiving those who hurt us. Forgiving those who dump our lunch on the floor. But there are many other ways to show grace. Uh, A phone call to someone who's going through a hard time. Inviting a friend to church uh, so that they can hear about Jesus. Little things make a world of difference. And one very practical way that we can show grace right now is through these Christmas shoeboxes. I want to close with a video that shows the difference that a a shoebox can make, a Christmas box and how it opened the door for this one child to experience God's grace. So let's watch that together. Hi, my name is Elena. I grew up in a um, broken home, abused home, and uh, my parents were alcoholics. When I was eight, we were put into our first orphanage. We had to share everything. We didn't have anything to our name. I was at my lowest point, feeling unloved, worthless, and God brought in shoebox. For me to receive a box like that filled with toys, it was really special because that was the first time I received a gift before. One of my favorite things in that box was the booklet that's called The Greatest Gift of All. And it tells the story of Jesus and how he came and died for my sins. And uh, reading that booklet, I thought it was a fairy tale because they told me that a creator of everything came down and died for someone like me. And even though I thought it was a fairy tale, um, it gave me hope. And so I started praying to the God that I thought was a fairy tale, and I prayed for a family. And um, he provided me a family. And he provided a family that wants me and my sister together. And, you know, God's been working through it all. God brought me a shoebox. And because of that shoebox, I 
got adopted and then not only into my earthly family, but into my heavenly family. Receiving that box gave me hope and it gave me faith and something better, that there was someone out there that loved me and he wants to take care of me. I just want to encourage you guys to pack more shoe boxes and to just thank you from the bottom of my heart. Keep doing it because without you guys, it wouldn't be amazing. Something so small as pack, packing a box with some toys in it can change a life and someone's eternity. God is the God of grace, and he invites us to show that grace to others. Would you pray with me? Loving God, we, I praise you and I thank you for your great love for us, for sending your son Jesus so we could know how deep and wide and high and long it is. And I, I pray for each person here, God, that they would understand that there's nothing they can do to make you love them more and there's nothing they've done that makes you love them any less. And I pray that you'll help each of us, God, to be dispensers of grace, uh, that all people would know the goodness and the kindness that we've known. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.